Hey guys, I have a podcast recommendation for you. Fame and Misfortune is a celebrity-based true crime podcast hosted by two 20-something beauty industry co-workers. Aaron and Stephanie discuss Hollywood true crime cases with lots of satire and a touch of glamour. As far as topics discussed, think O.J. Simpson, Kurt Cobain, and the Kennedys. Aaron and Stephanie give weekly makeup, skin, and beauty tips, too. Bonus. If you're into murder, Hollywood, and beauty, subscribe to Fame and Misfortune Podcast and get all of it in one pretty package. Fame and Misfortune Podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and other popular podcatcher apps. Also, check out their website at fameandmisfortunepodcast.com. Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Welcome to part two of my interview with retired FBI profiler Jim Fitzgerald, also known as Fitz. If you haven't listened to part one, please pause this episode and listen to part one of the interview first. In this episode, I'll continue my chat with Fitz and get into his experience working on an FBI task force trying to catch the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. In part one, we left off with Fitz talking about Ted Kaczynski's sexual identity issues and his desire at one point in his life to become a woman. I want to take a quick second to shout out some of my newest show patrons. Thank you to True Crime Island, Ignorance Was Bliss, and Whining About Crime podcast. I appreciate your support for the show, guys. All right, here's the conclusion of my interview with Fitz. After living in the cabin for about eight years, from like 70 through 78, he decided he wanted to come back to society for the purposes of meeting a woman. And um, he actually worked for his brother, David. Remember, David, seven years younger than him. But he uh, took a job at the, this foam-cutting industry place, and he asked a, a woman out, and uh, they went out for one very innocent date. They baked an apple pie or something, and he asked her out again. She said, you know, politely, no, I'm not interested, Ted. Thanks, but no thanks. And the next morning, David walks in the office, and there's all these post-its or the versions of post-its back then all over the inside of the company with these insults and these poems and these bizarre statements about this woman, body shaming her, as we would say now. And it was awful. And and David insisted Ted apologize, take everything down. No, I'm not going to do that. David had to fire his PhD holding older brother from this foam cutting job, whatever it actually was, like an assembly line thing. And uh, Ted was resentful of him after that although they did still communicate by letter because then Ted decided to leave and go back to the cabin, but not before he sent off four bombs during that same time frame. Oh my gosh. And so his brother, David actually helped him build the cabin, I think in 1972. And I know that uh, now tell me if this is correct or not, but based on the TV series, you had visited David uh, in his home to question him about his brother, Ted, or you didn't know Ted Kaczynski's name at the time, but you knew there was a connection with David and Ted and the Unabomber, I should say. So what was it like when you- Well, I mean, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you again. Please do. Sorry. And these are legitimate questions you're asking. In real life, I never met David Kaczynski. Gotcha. Okay. That was other agents. When Hollywood makes movies or TV shows like this, they invent not only dramatic license, but they come up with composite characters because you just can't have too many characters in any one movie or series or even a book for that matter. Although my book, everything is accurate. So that scene is sort of fictionalized. It was other agents that talked to him. And that was after a lawyer already contacted the FBI. But what they did capture correctly is that David, through this lawyer, sent a 23-page document that his brother wrote. So yeah, just let me just back up a little bit here. So David's wife comes back from Paris, says, hey, David, uh, and the series captured as well. You know, you should check this manifesto. Boy, just like your brother in, in Montana. I never met the guy, but I read his letters. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. My brother the, is the Unabomber. He wouldn't hurt a fly. It took about a month. He read it online. He had like a holy you-know-what moment. The light bulb went on above his head. He contacted a lawyer. They had someone look at a, at a draft of this 23-page document that David dug out from the early 70s, but luckily he saved. But all we knew was by the time the FBI is contacted, hey, we had this 23-page document. This guy thinks that maybe his brother wrote it. Could you look at it? They looked at it at the UTF. I now have come back to Quantico 
And I wasn't thrown off the task force or anything like that after the, the manifesto was published in September of 95. But just my bosses wanted me to come back in Quantico because that was my full-time assignment because sure. I had other cases I was being assigned. So I went back and I was there through February of 96. I was dealing with the UTF people. They would send me documents. Every week, two or three letters would come in. They knew I was kind of the manifesto expert. Hey, Fitz, can you look at this letter? We have this suspect. I would say, no, nah, doesn't do anything for me. How about this guy? Nah, you can maybe you know follow him around for a week, see what he's doing, but I don't think it's him. Finally, in late February of 96, I get a call from the UTF boss. Hey, Fitz, we're going to fax you a letter can you, or a 23-page or a document. Can you look at it? Oh, sure. Well, what's this guy? What's his background? For some reason with this guy, they wouldn't tell me. We're not going to tell you anything, Fitz. Just take a look at it and let us know what you think. So I'm sitting at my desk, and uh, I pull out my old, well-worn, dog-eared version of the manifesto, and I start going page by page by page, and all of a sudden the term Rosetta Stone comes to my mind mm -hmm. and into my brain. And I said to myself, after like two hours, I said, this is either an elaborate plagiarism, meaning somebody got the printed copy of the manifesto from the Washington Post, found an old typewriter, some old paper, and sat and typed like an outline of the manifesto in like chronological order of what's listed in the manifesto, or <laughs> this is the real deal. This letter really predates the manifesto, I called up the boss out in San Francisco and said, you've got your man. They said, Fitz, it's not a plagiarism. That we know. You're coming back to San Francisco. Within five days, I was back out there. I was put in charge of the comparative analysis project is what we called it. And that is because as I got off the plane in San Francisco, they wouldn't tell me anything over the phone. Yeah, we have a suspect. His name is Ted Kaczynski. He's a former math professor, and he lives in a cabin with no running water or electricity in Lincoln, Montana. And um, luckily, his mother and brother saved all the letters he's ever written them. We want you to look at them and compare them to the writings uh, of the Unabomber, including the manifesto. And I even said to them, uh, should we hire like a linguist? Or I think, <laughs> I think like, like a linguist is a person that studies language. I mean, I knew that. But for emphasis purposes, maybe we should hire someone. No, Fitz, the turnaround time would be too long. No one knows the manifesto and the Unabom writings better than you. Put your team together and we're going to use this to arrest him or at least search his cabin and go from there. So starting in late February of 96, I had a full-time position of leading about five or six people to uh, look at every single Unabom document compared to every single TED document. We were told originally there were about 40 TED documents, letters he wrote to his mother, letters to his brother letters to the editor published in magazines, some short stories, some other um, you know, poetry, everything you can imagine. Some were typed, some were handwritten. All of them, went, all the typewritten ones went off to the laboratory, none of them matched up to the Unabomber's font style, if you will, or type, mm -hmm. you know, type key uh, style. So we didn't have any luck there. But I started putting these little phrases and, and clauses and sentences together saying, boy, look, these are almost identical, and this is almost the same thing, and, and these you know, bizarre, I won't say bizarre words, just unusual words that you wouldn't find anywhere else. And um, we were going along, and I probably had several hundred you know, comparisons of very similar sentences from the Unabomber's writings to the Ted Kaczynski writings, but there just was no smoking gun, or at least Rosetta Stone within my Rosetta Stone. We couldn't you know, break the hieroglyphics at that point according to the uh, prosecutor, until finally I came upon a letter from the early 70s, a letter to the editor to the Saturday Evening Magazine written by someone named Theodore Che Kaczynski, because his name was on the bottom. And uh, it was about evils of technology and then the environment being destroyed and ruined and big business and all those things. And here it ends with the um, well-known proverb to me, but you can't eat your cake and have it too. Mm -hmm. And talk about a light bulb going off. I pulled out my manifesto and I knew it was paragraph 185. And there's that same exact axiom again, blah, 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 technology, capitalism, big business. Well, you can't eat your cake and have it too. And I know you and your listeners are probably aware by now, he transposed the verb in both instances. Most people said, certainly back then, you can't have your cake and eat it too. He did it. He, again, he switched the verbs around. And 
I thought I had a mistake when I first saw it in the manifesto. I thought it was a mistake again. But this guy, because he made no mistakes in his writings, his, every sentence was grammatically correct or standard, as we say in linguistics. There may be a few typos that he would put X's over because he wouldn't use a word processor because he's anti-technology. And um, long story short, he, um, there were so few mistakes, except I found this one. I was so proud of myself. I didn't know what it meant at first when I saw it in the manifesto. But when we finally found it in a letter from Ted Kaczynski, and I ran it down to the prosecutor, then finally told the other bosses, because I was the first one to find it on the UTF, they, they all had their holy you-know-what moments. And um, they said, that's it. Let's go for this guy. And we collectively decided, uh, well, CBS got involved. And they, Dan Rather and his, his, one of his people somehow figured out there was a leak, we think, out of the DOJ in Washington. And somehow they had uh, information that uh, the FBI was monitoring a guy in Lincoln, Montana, who may be the Unabomber. So we had to put everything together. They gave us three days or they're going to run with the story. So we realized we didn't have enough for a, an arrest warrant, but we certainly had enough for a search warrant. And they asked me to put together a 50-page affidavit. Uh, well, they said to put together an affidavit. It turned out to be 50 pages long with 600 sentence-by-sentence comparisons, including you can't eat your cake and have it too, written by the Unabomber, written by Ted Kaczynski, all side-by-side. And they said it's never happened before where language analysis was used as probable cause for a search warrant. This is going to be a test case. They took it to the uh, federal judge in Montana, and he looked at it, hesitated a bit. I wasn't actually on the scene with the judge. The miniseries made it look that way. But I heard through the phone a little bit later, search warrant's been approved. We're going in tomorrow morning. And uh, as everybody knows, uh, on April 3rd, 1996, by about 11 o'clock in the morning, based on the search warrant, the Unabomber's door was knocked upon and uh, he came out. They wrestled him to the ground and detained him legally. They didn't have an arrest warrant. Shortly afterwards, he was arrested. The cabin searched and bomb devices were found, bomb uh, components. Uh, the manifesto parts were found, you name it. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. Wow. T- yeah, tons of evidence, you know, once you opened up those cabin doors oh, yeah. again, just to go back. I mean, the work that you and your team did obviously led to catching this guy. And I have no doubt you all saved some lives. So that's probably a very incredible feeling, you know, on the day that he was apprehended. Can you even describe how you felt that day? Yeah, I was uh, back in San Francisco. And by the way, the writer and the director, can't we put you on the arrest scene? Let us have you make the arrest. No, no, no. <laughs> I lost some other arguments with them, but I, it's, it's a big deal in law enforcement if you are the one that you know claimed you put handcuffs on someone when you didn't. Sure. So I convinced them. And they actually wrote into the storyline. It, it made it look okay there. So I was back in San Francisco. We were listening to the live radio broadcast because they had hostage rescue team was surrounding the cabin and they had helicopters not too far away. They didn't want it right overhead and spook them. But the last thing we wanted was to have another Waco or Ruby Ridge incident, which was only a few years before for each. Ruby Ridge first, then Waco. And so they really wanted to get this guy out of the cabin. They didn't want him blowing himself up or holding hostages or anything like that. So they really did a very good job in terms of making the arrest itself. And then we heard everybody safe, Kaczynski in custody, and we're searching the cabin soon. Of course, they sent robots into the cabin, you know, the little tiny uh, robots with cameras on them and all, which was very ironic when you think about it for a guy who is anti-technology and and thought we should live with uh, agrarian tribes with, uh, you know, no more than 30 people. And here there's a robot going through his little home there. But luckily, uh, you know, we had to make sure there were no trip wires or booby traps, anything like that. And, uh, and yeah, a uh, reality check here. Quite frankly, no FBI agent interviewed the Unabomber, including Jim Fitzgerald. Those scenes were fictionalized in the series. Uh, a couple agents sat across a table from him. He did volunteer his name, but basically he wouldn't even acknowledge they asked him, hey, are there any booby traps in there? Is anybody going to get blown up if they touch anything? He wouldn't answer. He talked a little bit about fishing and hunting, but there was no interview of uh, Kaczynski. And I argued with the writer and director about those scenes, but they had two A-lister actors. They said they wanted to put together Paul Bettany, of course, playing Kaczynski and uh, Sam Worthington uh, portraying me. So uh, my only interaction with Ted Kaczynski was in the courtroom in Sacramento, California, the day he was sentenced. And uh, somebody called out my name afterwards, hey, Fitz. And Kaczynski turned around, stared at me. And it was the longest 45 seconds of my life. <laughs> if, if daggers or, in fact, explosive devices could have been sent out 
in his stare to me that it would have happened. And uh, I recount that in my book three and uh, <laughs> over a few pages, what an odd experience that was. And uh, but before long, uh, the cuffs were put back on him and he was walked out of the room and uh, never to see the uh, uh, light of day again. Wow. Okay. So yeah, of course I would have had a ton of questions about your interactions with him because, you know, my, you know, mind always being curious, you know, about these killers. uh, I would love to know some of the things he said to people, you know, but I I don't know if you're aware of any conversations that were had with him afterward and things he might've said, but um, gosh, that would have been crazy sitting face to face to, you know, with the guy. Well, well, let me tell you what kind of the compromise was. Uh, Of course he talked to his legal team, And uh, the writers, you know, there's some published information about how he was dealing with them. And here's what happened 10 years later, uh, or just about 10 years later, 2007, my last year in the Bureau, in early January of that year, I was invited to the Air Force Academy to give a uh, series of lectures. I was very honored to do that. It was planned for April. So in the meantime, I I remembered that Florence, Colorado, the Supermax, where Kaczynski is now housed, he still is to this day, and he was in 2007. I said, "Wow, I wonder if I reached out for the, uh, you know, the correctional staff there. If I can maybe set up an interview, and after my uh, lectures at the Air Force Academy, I'll drive down and see him." Long story short, we had a whole research protocol set up with serial bombers, so this all fit in. I contacted the prison and took a few days. They got back to me. Yes, uh, Kaczynski knows who you are uh, because my name, of course, was all over the search warrant to get into his cabin, and he said he would talk to you in April. Okay. So a few months, I had to fill out some forms, paperwork, yada, yada, yada. I do my lecture at the Air Force Academy that one day, next day, rent a car, and I'm driving southbound on the interstate towards Florence, about a two-hour drive from Colorado Springs. About halfway there, I get a phone call from the correction officer. And actually, I'm going to back up a little bit here. If anyone doesn't know this, Florence, Colorado is called the Supermax for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is every inmate there is in solitary confinement. 23 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can do the rest of the numbers. And um, lo and behold, they don't get out at all except to exercise and to take a shower one hour a day. So next thing you know, I'm driving down the interstate and I get a phone call from the correctional officer. And lo and behold, he says, "Um, Agent Fitzgerald, yes. Yeah, the interview is not going to work today. I said, oh, well, what's the problem? Yeah, I talked to uh, Mr. Kaczynski and he wanted me to give you a message. I said, okay. He said he'd really like to talk to you today, but it turns out he's busy. (laughs) This is Unabomber humor because he probably thinks I, or thought back then, that I flew all the way out to Colorado. He he most likely knew I was either assigned to San Francisco or Quantico, whatever he thought. Uh And he probably thought he was going to greatly inconvenience me, have me fly all the way out there and an hour out, tell me to turn around. So I did turn around and I wound up climbing Pike's Peak that day in my car. So I think in the long run, I had a better day that day than Kaczynski did uh, being locked in prison. But what I wanted to say here is I had about 50 questions written out for him, 40 or 50. And I actually saved those questions. And I uh, gave those to the writer specifically as they were putting these scenes together. And they kind of incorporated, I think, some of the known dialogue that Kaczynski had with his attorneys. Some of the questions I would have asked him if he allowed me to in 2007. And they had read some public source material of some of Kaczynski's writings over the years. And I think, uh, and I actually know a lot of the Q&A, the dialogue, the discourse going back and forth in those otherwise fictitious scenes between Fitz and Kaczynski were based at least in part on questions I would have asked him and maybe how he already answered them in his writings that the writers uh, uh, had access to. So yes, fictionalized scenes, but at least based a little bit on some knowledge of what was actually uh, spoken with Kaczynski and a few others or, or what could have been if he allowed me to do that interview. Oh, yeah. And of course, I wish he would have allowed you. And you you kind of read my mind because my next question was going to be, you know, what were you planning to ask him? And so uh, with respect to your time, I know you probably don't have much more time and I only have, a, you know, a few more questions. But I would like to know, can you give me an example of, you know, maybe one of the questions you would have asked Ted that day had you had the opportunity to speak with him? Well, I will answer that, but I'm going to flash ahead to 2016. And um, when the writers were still putting the story together, they thought it would be really one idea would have being modern day Fitz go into the prison and interview Kaczynski in 2016. Wow. 
So Kaczynski was actually in the newspapers because he reached out to some New York Times journalists back in like May of 16. I think he heard his brother David was going around and, and calling him crazy and mentally unfit. And he wanted to dispel that idea. And this New York Times reporter, so because Ted has people writing him all the time. Hmm. He has anarchists from all over the world, lawyers, he has fan clubs, you name it. So he has a pretty good idea of what's happening in the outside world. I'm sure he gets newspapers too. But this New York Times reporter sort of by Twitter made fun of him and said, hey, the crazy Unabomber wants to talk to me. Yeah, as if in so many words. And you could tell like overnight, his editor must have gotten to him. And the next day, I'd be glad to talk to you, Ted. Uh, I'll write you a letter back. But that interview never happened. So I jumped on that media blurb. And I uh, and with the writer's approval and Discovery Channel was going to handle all the travel expenses. I wrote Ted a five page letter. Of course, it was handwritten. But you couldn't send Ted a computer generated letter. He's that anti tech guy. And I laid out to him who I was. I didn't hold anything back. I'm one of the FBI agents that, uh, you know, investigated you in the case. And and I would like to talk to you. I think you some of your ideas after all these years, you know, you were not incorrect. And uh, and I'd be curious to hear some of the logic. I never thought you were crazy. I know you had some issues with society and your family and you had frustration and anger. But I guarantee you, whatever you tell me, I'll record accordingly. There's this TV series coming up. We'll we'll make sure it's represented well. And I think, you know, I, I would be taken pretty serious if the FBI profiler who was part of the team who arrested you, uh, you know, is writing an article somewhere about what you have to say now. So with all those good intentions and this five page letter, um, which, by the way, is in the last several pages of my book three, uh, I put the whole letter in there. I, I wish I had an exciting uh, conclusion here to it. He never responded. Uh, I certainly had a P.O. box set up for him. I wasn't going to give him my real address. And uh, just in case he still had bomb making materials in prison, which he wouldn't. But uh, he never responded. So I actually tried a second time to reach out for him. And I'm pretty sure he got the letter. I I filed all the prison protocols that are needed. So I tried twice. And at this point, if he wants to talk to me, uh, he can write me a letter. So, Ted, if you're listening to this, Call me, okay? Have your people call me. <laughs> and you know what, Fitz? I think there's a really good chance that Kaczynski's listening to the Murderish podcast. I, I, I just have a hunch. <laughs> I wouldn't blame him if he did. Anti-technology Ted and all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I find it interesting that Ted Kaczynski had such a great mind for math and you, you know, have a very great mind for language. I know that Kaczynski had a very high IQ. I think it was 168, if I'm not mistaken. Um, have you had your IQ tested? Uh, yeah, in seventh grade. But back then, they wouldn't tell you your IQ. Oh. And to this day, I don't know what it is. I'm probably, I-, I can assure you, I'm not in the 168 category. I will defer that Ted Kaczynski is probably the probably the smartest person any of us would come through, uh, you know, in a normal day. I mean, Albert Einstein's dead and, uh, you know, a few other people. But uh, no doubt a genius you know, why he took the path he did, the direction he did. He could have contributed so much to society. And uh, and yeah, and math and uh, language are really not that unrelated, quite frankly. Uh, the, the serious linguists and tacticians and semanticists, they almost have mathematical formulae when they're describing how sentence structures and even word design are, are being explained. So they're really not that different. But Ted was also a genius in uh, in language in that he taught himself Spanish. He had never taken a formal Spanish course. He had never traveled to a Spanish-speaking country. But in his cabin, we found letters that he wrote to himself. And actually, he wrote some to David to pass on to a Spanish-speaking friend. And when we had our Spanish language translators look at these letters, they came back to us and said, "Uh, I just want to tell you, this guy's Spanish is perfect. There there are no mistakes at all. Uh, And he knew the article, you know, male, female, uh, or a feminine masculine article to use in front of the words and, and the verbs are, you know, conjugated the right way. So obviously he had books and we did find books in his cabin. And what, and that, I'll add that right now. Anybody that wants to go on my website, uh, www.jamesrfitzgerald.com. Uh, don't forget the R in the middle. One of the book three bonus chapters is the list of the books we found in Kaczynski's cabin. And I think you can tell a lot about someone by looking at their personal library, whether it's on a shelf on a wall or uh, they just keep, you know, their, their ebooks, however they store them, but it tells a lot about it. And you'll see that kind of the, the trends that, uh, and, and quite frankly, the eclectic mix 
of, uh, of books that we found inside the cabin. Charles Dickens was his favorite novelist and a psychology professor, I think, at the University of Minnesota. I believe he's still alive and still a professor there. He wrote several articles about separated twins, like young twins separated at birth or shortly thereafter. And for some reason, I think there were three separate articles of the same professor Kaczynski had in his cabin. And I wondered if he was curious why he and his brother David were so different. They weren't twins. They were seven years apart. But maybe this is the closest he could get to how siblings could be so different. David, a relatively normal guy, married, you know, living a conventional suburban lifestyle. Kaczynski, <laughs> just about the opposite. So, uh, yeah, so interesting how that all played out. Lawn Kings, headquartered in Los Angeles, California, is a synthetic grass company specializing in front and backyard transformations. Lawn Kings sells and expertly installs synthetic grass for homes, commercial buildings, sports fields, and theme parks in the Southern California area. Lawn Kings has perfected their craft over the last decade, and the majority of their business comes by way of referrals from happy customers. Lawn Kings synthetic grass is safe for kids and pets and can dramatically reduce your water bill. The grass is very low maintenance and comes with a long-term warranty. If you'd like a free estimate, head over to LawnKingsInc.com and tell them Jamie from Murderish sent you. I know the owner on a first-name basis because, well, he's my husband. My husband Steve has owned and operated Lawn Kings for the last 10 years, and he's a licensed contractor. He got his start in the business building outdoor sets for the movie industry for almost 20 years. He really knows his stuff, and he's kind of a nice guy. So head over to LawnKingsInc.com if you'd like more information or a free estimate in the Los Angeles or surrounding areas. It seemed that Kaczynski had love for his brother. You know, oftentimes we think these, you know, crazy cold, I shouldn't say crazy, but cold-blooded killers don't have the ability to love, but it does seem he he cared for his brother, uh, even though they had sort of a strained relationship and they were very different from each other. But it, it did seem that he loved his brother, David. Yeah, but he, I, I, and I've no doubt that love can be defined in different ways. Um, you know, he was the older brother, sort of the caretaker for a number of years. But towards the end of um, the Unabomber's bombing campaign, he was a desperate man. He hated his family. His father committed suicide which the whole dad at his eye thing, you know, could have played into that. Uh, he never traveled to his father's funeral. He was living in the cabin then. He didn't find out until he got a letter from David, you know, a, a week or so later. And um, very sad story there, but he really was angered at his family and he insisted his mother cash in an insurance policy she had on her father. I'm sorry, his father, her husband. And the mother didn't know it, but in like 93 and 94, she was actually financing the Unabomber's, you know, final thrust of his bombing campaign uh, by sending him, you know, cashier's checks. And he would use that money to travel from Lincoln, uh, uh, Lincoln, Montana, to the San Francisco area to mail his bombs and letters. So, uh, of course, she didn't know that. So it wasn't her fault, but he did need money for that. And yeah, just a sad story to the to that family. And they were they're very the Kaczynski, the mother and the brother. I never met them in real life, but they seem like very decent people. David, to this day, uh, gives talks about uh, the death sentence, the death penalty. He's not an advocate for the death penalty. He's anti-death penalty. He did claim the million-dollar reward, which in 1995 was the highest reward ever offered for any crime in the U.S. But to his credit, after paying some legal expenses, all the rest of the money he donated gave away to the victims of his uh, brother's horrendous crimes. So I, I credit David. He's a good guy. Had a very difficult decision to make and Whenever I teach my Unibomb class, uh, I can do a half-hour version of it or a three-hour version of it. I like to ask the people somewhere in the middle, if it was your brother mailing bombs and you suspected him, what would you do? And I was doing a lot of media interviews back uh, earlier in, uh, in March with the Austin bomber, and I was trying to talk to that sibling or family member or someone doing these media interviews. I know we're shifting gears here a little bit, yeah. Jamie, but, but uh, I knew, number one, the bomber would be listening to me. They always follow the media, these serial offenders. Uh, no doubt even your serial bank robbers probably read the newspapers or 
went online the next day to find out what the police know. And I was sure this Austin bomber was doing the same. So I was trying to speak to him, but also the people out there that might know him. And hey, do you have somebody with these characteristics? I explained at least to some degree the characteristics of the Unabomber. uh, And it turns out I was pretty much right on the money in terms of this guy. Luckily, that campaign is over, too. Good. Um, No. And so, you know, sort of switching gears away from the Unabomber, I'm curious to know if you could solve any infamous case that remains unsolved today. Have you thought about maybe what what case that would be? Oh, yeah, that comes right to mind very simply. And all the big cases I solved around the country, I played a part in uh, the D.C. sniper case, the anthrax case, other, um, you know, homicides, multiple homicides and serial rape cases around the country. The one that frustrates me to this day happened in Philadelphia. It was a, actually a street robbery, nothing real sexy about it. It was a street robbery that turned to a homicide. And it was my good friend uh, named Joseph Welsh. This was in the late 1990s and in, in right in my old neighborhood where I grew up and where he grew up. And um, not a whole lot of behavior at the scene, not a whole lot of uh, profiling. It was a, you know, a standard, quote unquote, street crime. Joe kind of hesitated giving his wallet to the guy. He shot him and Joe died about a week later. It was uh, so it's a case that probably no one outside of the Philly area ever heard of. But if there's one case I could solve, it would be that one. And when I write my fourth book, I'm going to recount that case. I'm actually going to offer a reward. And hopefully maybe after. It's been like 20 years now. Maybe someone will come forward and uh, and help me solve that case. Oh, gosh, I hope so. And I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that. And um, gosh, and, and you know what? It, it, as these things go, sometimes after you know more about this than I do, obviously, but as time passes, maybe people will be more willing to talk. And I, I applaud your efforts to try and catch your friend's killer. You're right. Time does uh, change stature and, and personalities and the big, tough badass guy, if I could say that, back in 1998 might be, uh, you know, an overweight, uh, you know, drug addict now that nobody really, you know, respects or has any time for. And, uh, and of course, somebody else could be jammed up on some other set of crimes, and they could volunteer that information. Of course, we still have to prove it and put the case together. And I still have people saying today about the Unibom case, just like the case I'm talking with Joe Welsh. Uh, oh, well, the brother turned him in. Yeah, well, Guess what? We did a whole lot to get someone to yes. turn him in. Ted Kaczynski was one of 2,500 suspects in the winter of 1996. Some of them were named. Some of them we had descriptions. Some were just my ex-husband, my neighbor, a guy I saw on the BART you know, uh, a train system, whatever. Uh, so, um, so again, I'm hoping, you know, just like with the Unibom case, somebody recognizes something about this guy and they come forward. But then we have to build the case afterwards. It'll only start with someone reaching out for me and saying, I know who killed Joe Welsh. Then, of course, the police will have to get involved. I'm not I retired now 10 years ago. I can't actively you know, work cases or make arrests or do anything like that. But hopefully someone would then come forward. Yeah, gosh, I hope so. So I just have a few more questions for you, Fitz. Um, when you read emails from people or other writings, I mean, do you do you tend to begin building a profile for them, even without thinking about it? Or does it take a lot more than a simple email to really apply, you know, forensic linguistic analysis? Is that something you well, do? Well, my half jocular answer to that, not the first one, Jamie, to ask me that question. And what I say now is in re- my retirement years, having started my own business, James R. Fitzgerald Associates, LLC, I only do forensic linguistic analysis when someone's paying me by the hour. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So uh, a normal email that comes in. But you know what? To answer your question with less jocularity, it is sort of uh, inherent in me um, that I look at something. And obviously a friend's email, we all make typos on emails or text messages. Nobody cares about that. But obviously if it's a strange email uh, coming into me, I've never met before. My email address is on my website and uh, I'm getting emails from grade school kids, from high school kids, college students, you know, wanting to explore the Unibomb case. They're doing linguistic analysis. And uh, I'll look at them, all right, is this really a kid here or what is this? And I'll, but, you know, I just, if it is, if I do think it's a kid, make sure your parent is involved in the next email back to me. I don't want to be communicating with just an eighth grader or something who watched the miniseries and is writing a term paper for their class. So, uh, so, but I will say, all right, does this kid, boy, he or she comes across like a, almost like an adult writing, but of course they could have had their teacher or parents help them compose this email. So uh, I do try to do a very basic profile of a 
strange email coming into me, um, but I certainly won't, you know, go overboard and give anything away of of uh, <laughs> too dramatic of uh, of a response if I don't if I really don't know who this person is. Got it. Now, now this is a very important question that I have for you, Fitz. What is another term for H two O? And you asked it the right way. Well, for about the first 40 years of my life, I would say water. <laughs> and um, I became very uh, conscious of that pronunciation while at Unibom. And I gave that anecdote to the writers. They loved it. And I do say water now because I tend to talk and give you know presentations around the country, around the world. And there's nothing wrong with dialect features. Uh, if you drop your R's in Boston or you say time for time in the Deep South, be proud of it. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, there's no wrong dialects if you're African-American and you don't put S's on the end of words. So what? Who cares? Which is, by the way, one of the ways we help solve the D.C. sniper case, because oh, wow. sometimes African-Americans don't put they don't pluralize words when they're uh, using them. So but again, who cares? Guys from Philly say uh, water instead of water. We say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday instead of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So a little um, vowel pronunciations in there. And uh, usually it's a vowel. It's the culprit that changes sort of the uh, the sound of a word. But uh, I am conscious now. In fact, my youngest son, uh, you know, was, he was you know very young when I went off to Unibom. And, and uh, when he would talk when he was, you know, eight, nine years old, he'd say water. He'd say, oh, it's really water. It's water. And he actually had somebody at his school in the Philly suburbs make fun of him as a young kid. Hey, he says water. Don't you know it's water? I said, no, darn it. You have it right. And uh, it was kind of a joke. I said, you said, however you want. I think to be to blend in with his peers, he wound up saying water again, which, of course, is very common for young kids. So, uh, but yes, I'm glad you didn't say Fitz pronounced water. And that would have thrown it off. Oh, yeah. And you could have, and you could have spelled the word to me or um, uh, but you said H2O. And that's how I do it sometimes, too, with people. I just, I love that part of it. In fact, I mean, I, I find accents and dialects so fascinating. And so I've traveled a little bit in my life. And so I went to the East Coast. And of course, I went to New York. And of course, to me, you know, people on the East Coast have, have a certain accent. And I'm always curious to ask them back, do I have an accent? And I've heard, I've gotten some interesting answers, but it's just kind of, you know, to me, obviously, I don't hear an accent because I hear myself speak every day. But I'm curious to know, do, do people on the East Coast think that people on the West Coast, you know, like in California, do we have an accent? Linguists um, uh, have studied that for years. Linguists, and I, again, I went back to school and got my second master's degree, this one at Georgetown University. Yay, Hoyas. <laughs> they didn't win anything lately, <laughs> but I'll say it anyway. Uh, and, uh, in, for, in, in linguistics, it wasn't even in forensic linguistics. And there are people within the linguistic community, they may be phoneticians, they may be dialectologists, doesn't really matter what they may refer to themselves as, but they've come up with maps of the U.S. and they've done surveys for years, some in person, some by telephone. There are basically about five to six dialect regions in the U.S. with little sub-regions contained with, within each. And you can go online and just look at you know U.S. dialect map. Canada has its own dialect map. The U.K. has some very specific uh, dialect features from the Cockney elements of uh, London, even to Birmingham, which is just, you know, an hour or so away by train. Uh, and of course, the Scottish and the Welsh uh, even argue different languages there. Uh, so but if you look at a map of the U.S., uh, basically around the Mississippi River going westward, it uh, it's almost one big dialect region with a, sub, a few little sub regions. But what's come up interestingly in the last 25 years or so, and, and, and at least in Southern California, you have a few different dialect features that aren't necessarily ethnic or race related, but more, uh, well, one of them is, one of them will be Spanglish. And that's, of course, you know, mostly Mexicans moving across the border and they would sort of have a hybrid English, Spanish, you know, Mexican, Spanish language. But you also have surfer dude language that was popular. Now, this has actually been studied in, uh, by serious linguists. And, uh, and you can probably guess the next one from a very popular movie in the 90s. Can you think of it, Jamie? Oh, my gosh. Is it um, like totally like Valley Girls? You got it. Valley Girl <laughs> English, they call it. And, uh, and they have studied that. And there was a whole generation of young women, girls, that picked up on that, those language features. And it's still studied to this day. And some of them you know, still have parts of that in there. So, um, so uh, yeah. But, and obviously, because most of the U.S. was settled you know, from the East Coast moving westward. So people would come from certain parts of Europe 
and they would settle in Boston. They'd bring their family members from Boston and parts of England would come to Boston. Parts of England went to New York. Other parts of England went to Philly. And believe it or not, you look all the way down in Savannah, Georgia, they have their own dialect feature that's similar to some, you know, mid-Atlantic features, but separate from the South. And then even after, you know, several hundred years, it's still there. But other parts of the South have their features. Texas is kind of one general dialect, but right kind of in the middle, they call it uh, Texas South. It's kind of around the Dallas area. They have their own dialect feature. So uh, yeah, any of your listeners check a dialect map and people, you know, well before I was involved. But as a forensic linguist, you can use these features to help narrow your suspect pool of a criminal who, for whatever reason, is leaving spoken messages behind, be them voicemails or, you know, uh, some sort of recorded messages to somebody. And it doesn't tell you where the person's living right at that time, but it'll give you darn good clues of where they grew up and where they reached puberty. Because basically by the time you hit puberty, there's been studies done on this, 12 to 15, wherever that would kick in, your dialect features are locked in and you have to sort of consciously work to uh, alter them as you get older, which I did a little bit. But anybody listening to this, I'm, I'm proud of born and raised in Philly. I'm, I'm living in the general area now. And uh, there's a few words that sneak out every once in a while that would give away where I'm from, but I, I have no problem. And I will say to you, Jamie, you have that kind of standard Midwestern or further West dialect, which is some would say featureless, but there are a, a few things in there that I think have really studied. And I when you when you drop this um, podcast, I'll listen to it again, and I'll get back to you with a full uh, profile of your linguistic habits. Uh, oh my gosh, I would be honored. That would be so awesome. Thank <laughs> I'll you. try anyway. No, that's but okay. I, think I, I won't. I won't hold you to it. But that yours would be are awesome. pretty generic, and obviously, you do some public speaking, probably uh, either at your job or certainly with this podcast. So there's not all that much identifiable there, but. Um, uh, but I'm sure we could pick up on a few features if I, with my headphones on and listen back and forth. I'm more listening to your questions now for comprehension purposes than listening for analysis purposes. Gotcha. So. No, that would be a lot of fun. And so, no, we'll we'll wrap this up. And I would love to know what you're up to these days and uh, talk a little bit about your uh, your books as well. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I've, I've written three books Um uh, a Journey to the Center of the Mind. They each have subtitles, uh, book one, book two, book three. The fourth book will be out hopefully by the end of 19, which will finish up the end of my FBI career and uh, go a little bit into what I've done since then. Uh, book three, which is published now, Infinity Publishers, available at some bookstores, but certainly on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Uh, book three ends with a long chapter on my role in the Unibom case. No dramatic license. I don't add anything in there for effect, but it's a very interesting story, I assure you. And there's a lot of things in there that just didn't make it into the miniseries, even though it was, you know, eight episodes long. There's just some things they had to cut out. So um, that's that. I still I have a, a business and I still am working in the private sector. Uh, I get, you know, lawyers and, and law enforcement agencies. I'm working a case in Australia right now of some harassing type letters. Uh, that's It's public source now, so it's not a secret. And um I do other uh, private sector things, not real sexy types of cases, but these people go on these blog sites, glassdoor.com, whatever, and they put nasty things or negative things about certain, uh, you know, a boss or a company. And they say, hey, we think this is one of our employees. Here are 10 emails our employee wrote. Can you look at these blog postings? And I always say, I don't want just one employee. I say, give me five employees, even if they're not suspects. Don't tell me who is your suspect. I want to have a general look at five people or so, and I will then look at the linguistic features and not be biased by just looking at one. And I've had a very good success rate in that regard. Some going to court cases, some just why they wind up uh, confronting the person, they admit it, and they move on from there. So that's kind of the non-sexy stuff. The fun stuff I'm doing is some TV shows coming up this year. One of them will be on the Oxygen Network, and it's sort of a follow-up to the case of John Benet Ramsey, oh, which I can't talk about. Sure. But this is the case of Kaylee Anthony. And I'm sure you and your listeners remember the little girl in Florida who was missing uh, in the summer of 08. Then her mother, uh, Casey Anthony, became a suspect and that whole story. So we're doing a, uh, I think it's going to be six-hour uh, version of that uh, case with my friend Jim Clemente, my friend Laura Richards and some other experts we brought in. So that's coming up on the Oxygen Network. I'm also doing a show called Notorious, just one word, Notorious. That'll be on the Reels Network, 
And that's 10 different episodes, and I'm a co-host of uh, each on each episode, or resident expert. I'm not sure what they're actually going to call me, but I give sort of a behavioral commentary on 10 different cases from the Patty Hearst kidnapping to the D.B. Cooper skyjacking, and one which happened after that in 72, to some recent cases like Anthony Weiner, the perverted congressman. Yes, I'll say it. Jared Fogler, the, the subway guy, oh, yes, yes. the perverted pitch man. Yes, I'll yep. say that. Yes. And uh, we do a Kate, we do an episode on the Unabom case. And there's a few other mixed in there too. And I, uh, it's, it's not just one kind of a serial killer here and there. It's all different walks of life. And I think it's uh, the production value is really good. So that's on reels. Kaylee Anthony, the case of will be on oxygen and a few other things I'm in negotiations for now. And uh, I'll let my Facebook people and Twitter people know when they come about, but uh, but for now, yeah, look out for those two shows, and you'll see uh, you'll see Jim Fitzgerald discussing all kinds of uh, stuff uh, on those. Oh wow, I am so excited about those! So I will definitely be keeping track of that. And since you mentioned social media, do you want to let people know where to find you on social media? Sure, uh, I mentioned my uh, website again, JamesRFitzgerald.com. Uh, Twitter is J Journey, and. Uh, Facebook, I'm not even in, I have a PR guy that does some of this, but just look up James R. Fitzgerald. You'll find me on Facebook and I have a page there and friend me and I'll, if you seem like you're uh, legitimate and not somebody from Eastern European and in, in, uh, lingerie, I will probably accept you as a friend. <laughs> don't know don't know how I get those uh, pictures, I swear. Uh, but they come in every once in a while. So I don't friend those people, but others I do. I can imagine. And I will just say, while we're talking about Facebook, you know, uh, that, that's how I got a hold of you. I sent you kind of a random Facebook message on a different topic. And I was so excited, you know, when you got back to me. And I'm, I'm so happy that it resulted in you and me getting to talk today. I know you're a busy guy. Um, you're certainly a very fascinating guy and um, been really, really fun, you know, talking to you, really insightful. And I'm very excited that I will get to meet you next month at CrimeCon in Nashville. Yes. And anyone who's listening to this, feel free to stop by. I'm giving a talk there. It's, uh, I believe, May 5th, 6th, and 7th. But double check the website, CrimeCon18 Nashville, and uh, I'll be giving talks. I'll be signing books, and I'll gladly take pictures with people. So, uh, Jamie, I'm looking forward to meeting you there, too. And I was in Indianapolis last year. It was a great time. And um, anyone who goes up there this year will have a great time, too, I'm sure. I'm super excited. I'll have my camera ready. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Fitz. I really, really appreciate you taking all this time with me. It's been just an absolute pleasure. This is going to be a great episode. I think my listeners are going to just be so happy to hear from you. So just want to say thanks so much for you spending time with me. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Fitz and want to give a huge thank you to him for taking time to spend with me. I would love to pick Fitz's brain for hours and talk about his career in the FBI and his work on the Unabom task force. But as you can imagine, Fitz is a very busy guy and he has not stopped working even though he is retired from the FBI. Luckily for us, as you heard during the interview, Fitz has authored a book called A Journey to the Center of the Mind, which goes into much more detail about his life and of course his work on the Unabom task force. You can also binge on the miniseries based on Fitz's work on the Unabom Task Force. The miniseries is called Manhunt Unabomber. I've watched the miniseries and it is excellent. As Fitz mentioned, we also have some other TV productions to look forward to later this year on the Oxygen Network and the Reels Network. I included a link to Fitz's website in the episode show notes if you want more information on him. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. I can't wait to see you all again very soon. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't be shy. Tell a friend. The word of mouth is powerful. You can follow the podcast on social media, on Twitter at Murderish Pod, and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. I have a closed group set up for us to discuss all things Murderish. If you'd like to take your support for the podcast a step further, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash murderish. If you choose to become a patron, you'll get some extra perks in exchange. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash murderish. Murderish merchandise is also available at two online stores. Links to the online stores are available in show notes and in the about section of the Murderish Podcast Facebook group. 
Thank you so much for listening and for your support. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Say murderish podcast is the best. I, I said no. Just say murderish podcast is the best. Vacuum podcast is the best. No, it's not a vacuum podcast. It's a murderish podcast. Is that um what the what is murderish podcast? It's the best podcast in the world. Do you like murderish podcast? Murderish podcast. Best in the whole place. Yeah! Hey, Meg, are you terrified when you see a large group of people dressed in the exact same outfit? Usually. Al, are you strangely intrigued by the idea of wearing linen to appease alien overlords? Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself sucked in by documentaries about cults from the 70s? Absolutely! Do you like your podcasts with wild but educated speculation? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, check out Can We Cult? Hosted by me, Allie. And me, Megan. We're two cheap wine aficionados slash best friends living in Portland, Oregon. Sure, we have some formal training and we do work in social services, but we got our real knowledge about cults from documentaries, books, Reddit threads, and again, wild speculation. Every Thursday, a new episode full of scary, sad, and hilarious stories with a whole lot of heart is released. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Overcast, as well as on all social media platforms at Can We Cult. Join, Join us, won't you? you? The Cult of Domesticity is a weekly podcast created by two best friends who share a love of history, true crime, literature, somewhat current events, and everything else in between. Join us every Thursday as we cover things that interest us and hopefully you too. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and most other podcast listening apps. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and we cannot wait to hear from you. Bye! Bye!